0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to coach and manager at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning and owner of Movement as Medicine, Kevin Carr. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast So really excited to bring you today's guest, and I think it falls quite nicely, not that it was planned, after episode 200, which when I was interviewed by Brett Bartholomew. So went down a different path in that podcast, and we kind of go down a similar path in this one, but there's a little bit more training content in there than there was in episode 200. So Kevin is, like I said before, is the coach and manager at Mike Bowles and Conditioning, but also has his own business uh, movement as medicine. So we discussed the business side of both them entities and the journey that that Kevin's been on to increase his ability to um, gain clients, keep clients, and build a business. Build two businesses, really. Obviously, helping Mike and build his build his own. So it was music to my ears. A lot of the stuff that Kevin was saying in this episode. But we do also, as well as the business stuff, we do also go into some detail about the kind of clients that Kevin coaches. So how he transfers from a group in the morning that is a group of five 60-year-olds to then a group of pro uh, ice hockey players. How things differ, how things differ in terms of language he uses, how things differ in terms of demonstrations he uses, the type of education that goes on pre-session, post-session, all these kind of really interesting comparisons because of the environment and the amount of coaching that Kevin does. And that was one thing that really stood out to me was the amount of coaching he does in this in this private setting. Like six hours a day, he's out there on the floor with a group or individual, which just thinking about pro sport, there's just so much other stuff that comes around and gets involved in the day. So to get a real insight into someone that's doing a hell of a lot of coaching, um, probably illustrates where coaches may be um, better better spending their time in these kind of environments. But yeah, it was a really interesting chat with Kevin, um, which I know you'll really enjoy given the diversity of um, of this podcast so uh, over to the podcast with Kevin um, and I know you enjoy it but just before we do get into this episode I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today so if you haven't heard of Vald Performance they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar and the all new Human Track so if you haven't heard of either of them three products visit ValdPerformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at Vald so their all new human track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So, Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results, with some more to come, which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So, if you like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at ValPerformance. So without further ado, over to the episode with Kevin Carr. Thanks for tuning in to the of Performance Podcast, so today I am delighted to welcome Kevin Carr to the podcast, so welcome to the podcast, Kevin.
1: Thank you for having me, happy to be here.
0: Pleasure. So anyone who doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, and then we'll go on to your multiple jobs, multiple hats, and uh, and yeah, just give us a bit of background on yourself.
1: Yeah, um, well, I term myself as a coach, um, first and foremost, uh, strength and conditioning coach, personal trainer, group coach at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. Um, and I've been out there for about 10 years. Um, so, kind of working as a manager there and a coach there, um, as well as being a licensed massage therapist and owning a massage clinic um, called Movement is Medicine, which is located right at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. So um, I've kind of had a history there as a coach. I started there about 10 years ago um, as an intern, and I've just kind of stayed there and built my career through him, and he's been a very good avenue to be able to do that. Um, and in that, it's provided me a lot of opportunity to work with a lot of different populations, whether that be general population or Olympic-level athletes, you know, and then moving now also into the rehabilitation setting with both of those populations as well. Um, in addition to that, um, building an education company with uh, Mike Boyle and uh, Brendan Ririck. Um, called certified functional strength coach. So, kind of working across multiple populations, and um, also working in the education um, through MBSC as well. Is in, and that's my home.
0: Nice. So, what's the what's the qualification called? Just mention that again. Certified functional strength coach. Okay. So, how does that differ from what else is out there in the field? Because I'm, is there a lot of stuff like that over there in the states? Kind of private education providers.
1: Yeah. And okay, so, how, how does that differ? Yeah, this was interesting, and it was it was really born out of a demand um, from a lot of people asking us to put together a certification, and years and years of us actually just saying no. <laughs> um, people would ask Mike to put together a certification course, and oh, for a long time, we didn't really pay much mind to what our coaches and interns, people we hired, what they had for a certification. As long as they had something and they had a degree um, in a related field, and you know. When they would come in, whether it was NASM, NSCA, ACE, whatever the, any of those certifying legal certifying bodies were, we would just be like, okay, fine, as long as you have something. But now, kind of forget a lot of what you know, and we're going to teach you how we want you to coach and how we how we want you to look at training, and we put them through their internship program and their education curriculum, and, and build them into the coach that we wanted. Um, and you know, we kind of offered similar things, like we offered mentorships, but we never really dove full on into building. A certification program. Um, and then when we did that about four years ago, um, we dove in and you know, we, we have texts, we have online videos. Once someone cert- signs up, you go through a whole online curriculum um, and you pass that. But what differentiates us from all those other options out there is we require a practical examination um, to pass. Um, and that we demand you that, that you come to a 10-hour full-day course and then pass a coaching exam at the end where you have to actually demonstrate um, exercises and cues and progressions or regressions, um, whereas many of like the gold standards for certifications out there within the fitness industry don't demand that. And we saw that as a huge um, kind of a hole in the education process for a lot of coaches because people would come to us with you know all these letters after their name or a degree, but they didn't ha- had never found their way around the weight room or-, or had the ability to demonstrate or coach or cue. So that's really what separates us from many of the others is that there's a practical component. Um, and we really demand our people be able to coach and communicate effectively.
0: So, a couple of questions off the back of that: what's the what's the market that you would go after? Would it was is it a personal training market? Is it those that want to transition to pro sport, collegiate sport? What's the yeah, what's the general market?
1: We have a pretty even. I've had a lot of collegiate, professional, and high school strength conditioning coaches, but they've also had a fair amount of personal trainers. Like we just did um, an event at the Chicago Perform Better Conference. We had about forty coaches there for us. Um, to go through the practical component, and it was kind of split, I would say, in thirds between strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, and you know, physical therapists and kairos. because we also have a lot of medical who want to learn the fitness side of things, um, and it provides a really good introductory baseline, at least the level one course. I would always term it as personal training 101, in that you know, if, if you pass that course, you went through the coursework online and passed the practical, that I would be comfortable with you training my mom or my dad. And that you wouldn't hurt them, and to be able to train them, you know, on a basic level fairly effectively. That's that's what I always tell people. Um, and then our level two course definitely is primarily made up of performance coaches because it's a performance-based certification, kind of more focused on uh, sports development.
0: Mm-hmm. Just thinking of how that applies to things that are going on over here how do, How do NSCA view other education providers? Do, do they see them as rivals? They kind of take them in and speak to them, and your friends, or is it a, is it not like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we haven't had much communication um, with you know NSCA or ACE or ACSM. and we've had some people reach out just about like um, you know offering some. Sub- adjunct education for them, but I'm sure, I mean, they're businesses, right? So, you know, I'm sure that they, they would look towards what's going on and say, see that as competition in some way. Um, but never, I don't think in any, any real, you know, direct competition way or anything like that. They don't have no, no, no one really has any, uh, direct communication between, between the education bodies. But, um, I mean, I, I would obviously think they'd, they'd see us as competition. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the most important thing is is that you know a lot of these companies have kind of drifted along for a long time and not continued to raise the bar for for what they expect out of coaches because I remember going to I was already working at Mike Buster and Conditioning as a freshman in college right so by the time I got out of my four year degree I was with a bunch of other kids that I guess were you know prepping for an NSCA CSCS exam and I did it as well I sat for it my senior year with everybody else um, and these kids came out with the CSCS but at the same time I. I was in a weight training course with them, and these kids had never lifted weights before. But they were coming out with a CSCS degree uh, because they just read the book, right? So cool. I, if anything, I would hope it would drive the competition that it would help these other certifications raise the bar as well. I mean, I would be happy to see a lot of these other companies go the same path as us, even though it might be seen as competition for us, um, just because it's going to drive the industry to have better coaches, especially on um, an entry level, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Completely agree. So you're a therapist mm-hmm. and you're a coach as well. Which which came first and then which where the kind of passion lies is passion split? And where's your time spent in the majority?
1: Yeah, um, I was definitely a coach first and uh, I, I still kind of refer to myself as a coach when people ask me, hey, what do you do for a living? I say I'm a coach. Um, but about five years in while I was working, I started to want to be able to service um, some of the people I worked with more, I saw a need to be able to have some manual skills. Um, and I was Brendan Rear, who's my business partner at Movement as Medicine. We were working together at MBSC at the time, and we both sat and we said, Well, why don't we go to massage school? And I consulted with other therapists, both massage therapists and physical therapists, Cairo, whatnot, about what I should do and kind of the consensus based on the population I wanted to work with. And the people that I was seeing on a daily basis is that massage school would have probably been my best bet and um, that I wanted to deal with, you know, kind of chronic movement issues. I didn't want to deal with acute or immediate uh, immediate injuries. Um, and I also didn't have the time and money to dedicate towards physical therapy school. So, you know, we went to school and I went through the LLT program and, and I learned there. But then it also really, the real reason was that it provided a platform for me to go to take some of these other manual therapy courses um, that have helped me to be able to service my clients better. Um, and at the same time that I was kind of finishing school, we were very fortunate that Mike Boilstra and conditioning was going through an expansion. So there was some open office space that was available to rent that pretty much was perfect to have a little clinic with two private treatment rooms attached to it. um, that I was able to start renting immediately. So I had a captive population to build a business um, you know, the day I had my licensure, um, which is which is pretty unique and rare, I think, for most people. Um, so now I'm just being able to build that business, kind of along with uh, coaching at Mike Walsh Strength and Conditioning and being able to build Movement as Medicine at the same time.
0: I love that. I love the fact that you've kind of diversified. Was that was that from purely a, a business point of view, or was it from a personal? Obviously, I know you, you can service your clients better, but did you see a gap in the market that? you'd kind of get two strands of business down the therapy and then you convert them to coaching and then coaching that you'd convert to therapy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was 50, 50. I saw the need first for sure. Like I was like, there was a gap there. We have one PT on staff at Mike Bowles, strength conditioning, who most of you listening probably know John Paloff um, of the famed Paloff press. Right. So he works yeah. with us. Um, but he's really busy. And, you know, as far as being able to see everybody, if there were people who I could just do manual work with, that would take a lot, one, um, off of his plate, be able to service everybody here better. And then also, of course, also generate an income stream uh, for me. Because as you know, when you're coaching, especially in a private sector, at some point, you're trading dollars for hours. And I wanted to be able to open up and build a business. And, And over the time that we were going to massage school, and we were paying into school, then I quickly realized, okay, I need to turn this into something that works out economically as well. So it, it, was, it was really good in that we had a need for it at the gym for sure. I mean, when we first got licensed, we, were, we got busy pretty quickly, um, which kind of drove us to kind of figure out our business model and figure out our treatment model um, and kind of on our feet as we were going. Um, but uh, it also, I mean, it, it made us start to develop a business plan. And in, in, it, it was something that Mike saw helpful because it helped feed his business. Um, and he was able to also give us an opportunity. And I would say like a lot of people wouldn't allow you to build your business within their business. Right. Um, but he, mm, he was very gosh. gracious in that and, and uh, has worked out really well for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So the, what's a day in the life, a week in the life of you were split between the two, uh, two hats. What's it look like? Yeah.
1: yeah um, typically I'm in the gym fairly early, like, 6, 6.30 in the morning, and I'll I'll see some general population, like small group training clients, uh, people who I've had for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, they, they're these clients that I kind of just always keep. And they're small groups, three three to five, um, just general population, middle-aged people who, who just really want to train and get after there and, and feel healthy. Um, and then this time of the year, we're very busy with athletes. Our summer is our busiest time of the year. So I have a group of high school kids that I had this morning from about 8.30 to 10.30, it's a really mixed population, everything from like elite high school level hockey players who are going to go play, you know, division one hockey in college to high school soccer or high school softball, um, female athletes down to gymnastics. So it's a pretty mixed group and that, that makes it fun and challenging for me because I have a lot of, you know, you know parallel but different programs kind of running at the same time. So I, I really enjoy coaching groups like that. And then um, after that, I typically kind of go into the therapy clinic and work, um, with therapy clients for a few hours. Um, people who need, who are typically their clients in the gym who need to be rehabbed back out or people who are walk-ins from outside that we hope to kind of transition in the gym at some point. And then the afternoons I typically spend doing, you know, management business type stuff. Um, but I might take some clients in there, here, there as well. So, um, as you can s- kind of hear the description, it's kind of, I'm kind of working with everybody all throughout the day. And people always ask me, you know, Hey, where do you spend more time? Is it 50, 50? And I, I would say like, Every day is different. Um, it really de- depends on where the demand is. Um, and in an ideal world, when I think about it, I think that if I'm doing a good job with my model, the rehab and the training should almost be indistinguishable from one another, right? Um, besides the fact, if I'm putting my hands on people, you know, it's all kind of one fluid spectrum, and that's really how I want it to be. Um, and so I'm always just kind of going back and forth wherever the demand is, and, and usually my client load's pretty full. Um, but I've been trying to do a better job now, keeping a little bit more time open to do kind of the management stuff and and move upwards to kind of see things from above. But yeah, it's, it's pretty mixed and throughout the week, it's pretty busy. And then lots of times, um, to teach the CFSC courses, I might hit the road on the weekends. Um, like this past weekend, I was just in Chicago with perform better teaching, but, um, I'll be around here for the next few weeks, kind of just coaching it up. So yeah, lots of hats.
0: Nice. So, how many hours a day would the would you say was average for you coaching time?
1: I'm typically in there uh, ten or twelve hours uh, most days. And
0: actual, actual hat like in front of a group or in front of an individual.
1: Um, no, so f- like in front of a like out there on the floor. Like I, if I'm saying I'm wearing my personal training group coaching hat, um, probably let's see six hours. I would say. And then I might have some therapy on there. But, again, some days it might be less. Some days it might be more. It just depends on um, kind of how things are flowing at the gym um, and how things are flowing in the therapy clinic, if where the demand is, you
0: know. Yeah, okay. The only reason I ask that is I'm just thinking of my experience in in pro sport, and we'll come on to pro sport in a minute. we, we get in at, what, half 7, 8 o'clock. We'd have probably a small group of maybe half an hour. We'd have a little uh, activation group of maybe f- – 20 minutes and the lads would go out to train. We'd have the injured guys for an hour. So, coaching time in that setting was probably what two and a half hours a day, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just comparing that to what you're doing, you're doing two, three, potentially a little bit more times that. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the re- Is that one of the reasons why you haven't? I'm not saying that that. That example is going to be replicable in in kind states and and them different environments over there. But is that one of the reasons why you haven't transitioned into pro sport?
1: Um, you know, I looked into uh, into pro sport and college. I did some time kind of um, interning and working with some college organizations here, and I I'd taken some interviews. And, and really, the the reason I've found I've really enjoyed being in a private sector. It's two reasons. One. Mike has created a very good atmosphere for us to be able to continue to develop and build things. And I kind of have a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in me in that I like to work for myself. <laughs> um, so okay, yeah. the opportunity to build a couple businesses and, and build businesses that not only help support me, but then also help support um, additional income for our staff members at MBSC because things like movement as medicine, medicine and CFSC have provided jobs for, you know, 20 other staff members also who work for Mike. So it's, be able to bring them up like so I like to be able to pursue those things. Um and also I do definitely have a soft spot for working with general population. Like I just had this woman like just before I came here, um, who's in her mid sixties and she's still a passionate tennis player. And for her, like it was a game changer for her, when I you know taught her to start to like squat, and I taught her to, have, to start to do push ups and rows and carries, and she's um, amazed at how much better she is than everyone she plays with, and how she's healthy. So stuff like that, like really, as much as I love working uh, with professional and inclusion, and that's what a lot of people get excited about. I also really still have a soft spot for that, and I don't really want to. Go away from it because I like that idea of quality of life for them. So I just uh I'm luckily lucky that that's where I, I I've I've landed here in a place where I can build a career um and feel you know both financially comfortable and um you know professionally like I'm being satisfied and challenged still. um So I don't have to necessarily venture out. You know,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So I've been banging the drum recently of and from my own experience of kind of searching for that the holy grail of moving into pro sport. And I suppose you're lucky enough over there that you have this big private sector where mm-hmm. here it's, it's limited for, to, to a certain extent for coaches, mm-hmm. but to hear that, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that's going on over there and the kind of things that you've got going on is really, is great to see. And the fact that you haven't moved into pro sport because of the shiny lights that it may bring, but mm-hmm. you've got that, what sounds like something really good going on over there. So that's music to my ears, that kind of thing. Um, should we chat about a little bit about the pro sports stuff, and then maybe how that compares to the general pop? Um, in terms of in terms of the, your your split, where does that where does I suppose we're all talking about that X versus Y? But um, how many how many hours a week would you be non general pop? So collegiate athletes, pro athletes, or is it a bit of a mix depending on the season? Um, where does that where does pro sport fit into your agenda?
1: It definitely fluctuates during the season. Like I have more athletes this time of the year um, because I mean, in, in the summer here we have a, this time of the year all like our hockey, college and professional and high school athletes are all here, um, and th- we have a very captive audience. They're with us at least four days a week. Um, in the summer. So like not only are we training them, am I training them every day, but we're also having them in the therapy clinic every day, whether it's just basic everyday maintenance stuff or we're working through some issues. So right now there's definitely a bigger sports load. I'd say I'm probably 60, 65, 70% more, uh, leaning towards athlete this time of the year. Um, and then the rest of the year, the sports, it kind of evens out closer to 50, 50, um, because the sports are seasonal, right? So um, I'll still have some hockey kids and athletes in the fall as they kind of transition into the season, but then ba- baseball comes around in the winter. So we'll have a kind of a, a bump of baseball athletes who are kind of training in their offseason before they go off um, and, and start, you know, their spring season and their summer season. So it's definitely seasonal. Um, this time of the year, it's definitely a little more athlete, um, which is nice. You know, it, it, you, you, you kind of get amped up for the summer. You know, the summer is a big energy time. You have a lot of athletes in there. The music's loud, you know, the energy is really up and the rest of the year feels kind of like smooth. Right. So I, I kind of also like that when people ask, you know, why am I still in this? Um, this setting and that like I, the, the changing of the seasons just like you do with your weather we have the changing of the seasons with the athletes and the population so it kind of, uh, kind of keeps you stimulated at all times
0: just before we crack on with part two, just want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness, who are sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a specialist gym manufacturer who are based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So everything is manufactured there, but it's also shipped and fitted all over Europe, all over the world. So they have linked in with uh, Play, the floor flooring company based in the US. Obviously got. Interest in, in Europe and in the UK more and more now. Um, so I've linked up with them to provide some unbelievable facilities that you that you probably have already seen, um, pretty unknowingly. But Black Box have uh, have created a really nice brand, really clean cut. Have a little look on their Instagram; it's really cool how they've, how they've set things out and how they promote their uh, their, their products and their facilities that they've done their the work on so if you are looking for complete gym gym refurb or are looking for just bits and bobs to put you on and, and tide you over and add to your um, your current equipment make sure you check them out so black box fitness can be found at blkboxfitness.com and on twitter and instagram at blkboxfitness so over to part two with kevin i hope you're part one and we'll crack on so I was reviewing a podcast that I did with Jason Heller on speed and acceleration, um, run a, a strength and power coach from Altis. And I was, I was li- I listening and I was transcribing, which has you know, taken it in quite a lot. I and mean, he was talking about a couple of differences between team sport athletes and his sprint athletes. Mm-hmm. And two things that stood out that I thought we could have a little chat about, but flip it in terms of general pop versus uh, professional athletes, and that's the language and the education he was he was talking about how how he um, sees them differ between his guys but how does that differ between your guys in terms of the language and the education that you put on them when they come in general pop versus pro athletes
1: yep um definitely with general pop when they first come in the whole saying of like people don't know how much you care till they know how much you care how much you know till they know how much you care i think is 10x with them um, versus with athletes i can be a little bit more direct um, and a little bit more autocratic now i still think there's definitely a, uh, a mentorship and communication level with athletes that's extremely important but with the gen pop especially coming into our gym that's like the sports performance center you think about the average gen pop the person that comes in um, the number one thing um, i try to communicate and, and demonstrate to them when they first come in is hey what can i do for you What do you care about? Making them feel successful, making them feel comfortable. Because I can start to, if I can get them to feel comfortable and start to feel like, you know, I'm their person and, and, you know, I I got their best interests in heart, they'll do anything for you after a few weeks. With the athletes, I think a lot of them are used to being coached for the most part, unless they're really, really young. Um, So being a little bit more direct and being a little bit more um, instruction heavy with them. works a little bit better than like if i'm coaching like a you know 50 year old mother or two who you know worked all day for 10 hours and has, is worrying about her life you know me barking at her about dorsiflexion probably isn't going to be the best approach <laughs> um but like me just picking one little cue and then talking to her about her day um and things that interest her is going to go a lot a lot longer so like i think with general pop personality wins even more than anything and i, I again that that still matters a lot for performance but i think that uh you can have a little bit more of a hard edge. I always say like with, I always go from being a more autocratic coach to a more friendly mentoring type coach with athletes. And I go the other way with my general pop where I kind of am a very good friend first and work the other direction. Um, and I tend to find that, that that generalization stands pretty true for the most part.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. The next question. How was the How was the personal training with the 60-year-old woman who plays tennis how's that how's that affected your your uh, delivery and i suppose your language and education from the on the pro sport but i guess you've you've answered that but that's really that's really interesting how they've one's kind of uh affected the other
1: yeah, yeah. i mean it, it, it forces you to be more emotionally intelligent um or at least emotionally flexible right because i mean if you're used to one type of population and one kind of you know, schema that you're always going to kind of translate to people, then it's, then you get stuck in that. Whereas like, I might have like, literally I'll take you through my day yesterday. Um, I had this group of like five middle-aged guys who like to like get after it. So like, and these are guys who are like former athletes. They're in their forties, fifties to sixties. So with them, I'm like one of the boys, you know, and and they really want to kind of, you know, get after it. But at the same time, I'm making them feel good because they all have kind of joint mobility issues. Right. So one of the boys there, then the next, kind of hour and a half, I have a bunch of middle-aged women who, you know, are kind of newer to lifting, right? So I'm working and teaching them about bench press and deadlift while they're also trying to talk about the final of The Bachelor that's on tonight, right? So I have to be more emotionally flexible in how I can communicate, but I still want to get – if you look at the training programs, they're very similar, like right? But how it's translated and how it's communicated is going to be very different. Then after that hour, I got about two hours with these high school kids who – can sometimes be like herding cats, right? I have some pretty serious 17-, 18 year old hockey players who are gonna play at a very high level. Then I also have these high school girls who are finally kind of getting into lifting but still, you know, take a little coercing in, in their high school girls so they they, you know, can be distracted easily. Then I also have some some younger kids who are just getting in the fold and they're all in a group. So with them I have to treat it like a group. So I go from being very directly you know, one-to-one communicating with that middle-aged group of women before to speaking to a group. I have my coaching voice, my coaching swag. I'm very detailed, focused about, hey, I need lines of three, right foot forward, left knee down, like being very specific. Whereas if I coached that group of women before that that way, they would be like, I don't want to work with this guy. He's like a drill instructor, <laughs> right? So because of that, it has taught me how to like flip the switch. And I think that that's valuable just in life in general. But um, it's I think it's a good experience for any coach to go work with a population they're not used to because it makes you feel it makes you feel like, oh man, I'm not that good at this, right? It makes you gets you honest and has a moment of humility, but that makes you better in the long run.
0: I think that's I think that's a really good point that that skill is good just in life yeah. to be able to flip between the two depending on who you are speaking to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great point, fantastic point. Um, so let's just transition it over to you work with ice hockey. Mm-hmm. So. What's what's the experience there, and is that through the, is that through the obviously through the mic link? I'm guessing.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and it's uh it's funny. Like I, I played hockey when I was younger, but not really. Once I got a little bit older, and I I've been a casual fan, but then coming back to MBSC when I was about 19, um, now it's like the center sport in my life um, because of that. Because that's obviously in the Northeast, but especially in Mike Bush and conditioning, that's the major sport, um, especially up here in Massachusetts um, where we are. It's very popular. So that's definitely our main population. We have a very captive audience um, from middle school, to high school, all the way up to professional. Um, and it's been really good. It's a, I, I really enjoy working with that population. It's something I feel very comfortable with um, kind of on a whole scale. And I've been very lucky to um, learn under some people when I especially when I was an intern um, who are now at high levels in both the NHL and NCAA level hockey Um and now every, on a daily basis being surrounded by Mike and, and, and the, the professional guys here that I've worked very comfortably with now. So definitely it's a cool sport. Um, some unique challenges as far as, you know, mobility goes and, and injuries go as well as conditioning goes. But I found them as a population of athletes to be very enjoyable to work with for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's use these next couple of minutes to get into the nuances a little bit of of keeping them fit. I know you mentioned injuries there, but keeping these guys fit. What's the strategy behind keeping these guys on the ice?
1: Yeah, um, number one, um, as it being a contact sport, like similar to football or rugby and these other things, you just hypertrophy just from a a body armor standpoint is very helpful. Um, And so the number one thing, just getting a, a good base level of strength up for them um, is huge, especially the high school collegiate level. That's usually a huge empty bucket. Um, a lot of these athletes now, more than ever, spend all year on the ice, um, and they really struggle to find a real true off season. Like even my kids now, um, as much as we kind of try to educate them and educate the parents, you know, they got camps or they have you know these special teams or these special tournaments. So you know, being able to get them off the ice at least or a limited amount of ice time in the the off season so they can really dedicate towards getting stronger and putting some size on um, and putting some muscle on, I think is the the bottom of the pyramid for most people. And then we can build on top of that Um, because a lot of them, you know, they they take a lot of hits. They spend a lot of time on the ice. They skate, skate, skate. And by the end of the year, they're 20 pounds lighter, you know, and and a lot tighter than when when they started. Um, Then obviously this population, we spend a lot of, time focusing um, on the hips in general from an injury prevention and health standpoint, so keeping them on the ice. Um, you know, skating is such a interesting uh, you know movement pattern in, in that the stride um, puts a lot of stress on the anterior hip adductors, and and we have a lot of um, kind of imbalances around the pelvis where we see these athletes kind of working into extension um, excessively, putting a lot of anterior tone into the hips and, and, and groin kind of leading towards things like sports hernia or, or chronic hip flexor strain. So we spend a lot of time, um, focusing on, you know, breathing, resetting pelvic position, resetting hip mobility to where we want it, and then strengthening the muscles around the hip correctly, whether that be hip flexion, adduction, um, and, and making sure all these things are kind of in tune, even as the skating starts to pick up, because as the skating picks up, they start to go back the other way. Right. So, um, I found having a lot of success, keeping, um, you know, really spending a lot of time around pelvic stabilizers um, and, and breathing and work like that to try to keep them neutral. You know,
0: do you do any sort of assessment around around that to, to grade these guys and see where they're at? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I mean, for for all my athletes, I, I typically would use an FMS type approach or SFMA type approach, as as my background's kind of based in uh, functional movement, whether it's whether in the therapy clinic or in a performance setting, but then also. Um, I've been kind of trained both through, um, functional range conditioning through Andre Espina, so some of the methods that he's kind of talked about there, whether it to be look at locally assessed joints following a more global screen, like an FMS, or, and also, um, I've been through the, the postural restorations to, uh, PRI, um, education as well, and using some of those, um, techniques to kind of look at people's, uh, look at the athlete's hip structure as well, and kind of taking all that as, my body of info and then in in kind of getting my output from there. Um, mm-hmm. Mainly trying to look at pelvic position, looking at hip internal, external rotation, uh, flexion extension, making sure that all these ranges um, not only do they move well passively, but do they move well actively? Do these athletes have active mobility um, through these ranges? And in what I find, you can tend to see a pattern with all of these athletes that you know they're they're really anteriorly shifted through their pelvis. Um, and with that, you see them lose significant amounts of extension, um, significant amounts of adduction and internal rotation as well. Um, so we're spending a lot of time kind of hacking that back stuff back and at least getting it back to a point where they're asymptomatic. They're able to play their sport. Um, and, and cause a lot of these adaptations are adaptations they get from spending a lot of time in the ice. So they're not necessarily things that I want to completely chip away or will ever be able to, but getting them to a point where they can move well enough, you know, and, uh, I, that that stuff's kind of worked directly into our program uh, for a lot of these athletes because, like I said, they're spending so much time on the ice that, that we can almost assume that a lot of them are going to need um, a lot of this, I mean, quote-unquote corrective work, but I, I would just say it's typically good training approach for hockey players, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. So just back to the Jason Heller uh, example. So he's obviously working on the track with his guys. He's doing, say, that for example, the kind of work that you're doing, and then he'll take it onto the track and see that in action and see if it needs more work or it's Mm -hmm. going well or what stage we're at. That's obviously slightly different because you haven't got an ice rink just outside. So how are you testing this to make sure that that it's, it's actually transferring to what happens during their sport?
1: Mm-hmm. what is actually interesting is at our middleton facility where the pro guys are we actually do have two sheets of ice okay <laughs> um and this, yeah. so this is this is actually a beautiful thing so this is interesting is so we've always had them in wuburn um, which is kind of our flagship but since we opened up this place in middleton a couple of years ago it has two full sheets of ice and that's where the all the pro guys skating coach is as well so it's actually it's a beautiful situation in that they they train in the gym and then immediately go right out on the ice with the skating coach. So we can get immediate feedback um, about how they're doing out there and we can actually see them out there um, so much so that, you know, they I think they're still hooked up to the heart rate monitoring system and everything. So um, it, it's, it's, that has been really good, especially um, with Mike and some of the guys up there and Ken Whittier, who's been with them a lot in um, the last past couple of years. And, and they're able to kind of see them immediately on the ice and get feedback from the guys right after the ice as well. Um, the big thing is, though, like even at, let's say scenario of us not being able to see him on the ice because for a long time we wouldn't ever, um, is that, you know, we want to make sure, number one, that we just put more horsepower in a lot of them. A lot of them we find when we look at the fastest guys on the ice, um, we have all, all our NHL guys, they're without a doubt our fastest guy in our time 10s and our flying 10 sprints. We pretty much measure um, time sprints twice a week, every week. Um, and that's something we've started to do a lot more this year than we would had in past years. Um, so we'll start with like um, dead start, ten yard sprints, get their times, then move towards five yard head start, ten yard head start, fifteen yard head start, and get their flying ten sprint times. Um, and, and we like to see those obviously trend down over the course of summer, which we've seen. Um, along with we do weekly vertical jump testing, um, and in our experience, looking at those times, they tend to match up almost seamlessly with the guys who are the and girls who are the fastest out on the ice. Um, you know even though skating and running aren't directly the same they, they tend to match up pretty well um, and so we always want to look to that we're trending those numbers the right direction that's really what we kind of use for our, our monitoring um, And something we've started to look at a little bit more um, is not just regular jump tests but trap bar jumps um, light loaded trap bar jumps as well as spread uh, sled sprints as well and we're trying to kind of Nail down the um, the speed and the percentage we want there as well to kind of see where we are in that uh, strength speed curve with with these uh, we're not only hockey athletes but our baseball guys, our football players, um, our soccer players, every other athlete as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So in terms of conditioning for these guys, is this off ice or is it on ice or is this a little bit of both?
1: Um, so with us, we're, we're for off ice. You know, we're doing a lot of stuff. Whether it's building from early on in phases, um, working through like tempo runs to shorter shuttles, not necessarily we'll finish with like stuff that's more lactic, like 300 yard shuttles, but we'll work through, um, 75 yards and one fifties which just for hockey specifically is pretty specific to, um, their, their shift times, um, out on the ice. Um, and then also doing work on the bike on, on our, on our other intensity days, doing more higher intensity interval work. But then as, especially the summer with our, our hockey athletes, as their skating starts to heat up, which is going to be a right around now, um, end of July, start of August, they're going to start to do a lot more on ice conditioning. Um, so we would start to kind of back off a little bit. Um, with some of the stuff in the uh, in the weight room, I mean, not rather in the weight room, but in the turf, um, so that they can get, you know, specific on ice conditioning, very similar to the work rest ratios they might see if they were in the gym, but out there with the skating coach doing doing their skating drills. Yeah.
0: Nice. And how much how much crossover is there between what the skate coach does and what you guys do, and vice versa? Uh,
1: well, the commu- the nice thing is the communication is very close because we've worked with. Um, their skating coach for pretty extensively for a long time and, and we stay very kind of in touch with you know what their loads are out on the ice. So we'll make sure like, hey, if we're doing a higher intensity day you know, in the weight room or in a higher intensity day for conditioning here, we'll try to you know, allow them to have that kind of stress and recovery response throughout the week so that we're not just kind of burying them with medium to high intensity work every single day, making sure that we can get a lower intensity day, higher intensity day, Um, so that there's some congruence there between, you know, the stimuluses that they're getting. Um, With that said, we're pretty much always going to keep the the lifting pretty consistent. We're going to keep the general power work, whether that's, you know, shorter sprints or swinging, kettlebell swinging or Olympic lifting or jumpings, that's going to stay pretty consistent. We just might temper down the intensity of the conditioning so that they can get more specific on ice time Um, and we're not, you know, burying these guys uh, all all summer long, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So, just last but not least, just a couple of questions and a, bit, a little bit of discussion around things that you've seen over the last ten years at, at Mike Wells Strength and Conditioning. Obviously, six hours a day minimum um, out there with with General Pop and and professional athletes. What's changed over the last ten years with what's expected of you as a coach from an athlete point of view? Are athletes uh, have you are you seen athletes and the General Pop been a lot more educated? just because the amount of information that's out there and, uh, and, and therefore expecting more of you. Is that, is, is that something that happens, uh, that you've seen happen over the last 10 years? Absolutely, yeah. The bar is definitely continually higher,
1: both from the athletes and from our incoming coaches, like just from our interns. And you can see as a culture, um, obviously access to information is much greater now than ever. Um, so I'm seeing clients come in who are much more informed um, it makes me think of the book, um, Daniel Pink, To Sell as Human. Um, he talks about how, you know, it used to be when you bought a car, you would always like just trust the, the car salesman and you'd think you were going to get swindled, right? Um, now, when you go to buy a car, you have, every inf- you have all the information, you have all the other pricing, you have the Blue Book pricing, you have all that stuff. That's how the training client is now. And whether that's an athlete or um, a general pop person, they come in fairly well informed for the most part, um, or they think they're well informed. They've at least read. Because fitness information is is out there. The general population consumes fitness information more so than they do, you know, many other um, genres. So when they come in, yeah, they expect more. They ask better questions. They, they want to compare to whatever they saw on TV or what they saw in a magazine or read in a book. And, I mean, I think that's good. I know I hear some co- coaches get cynical about like, oh, this person, you know, read this here. And I think our job is to inform people more. Um, so, I mean, if you have, if you have clients who want to come in and have an informed conversation, I think that's a blessing um so yeah i mean and i think that they expect you to be able to wear more hats now um you know i I have more people who ask me you know you know medical questions or want me to try to treat this or want to be able to refer them out to somebody else and again that's good um i just think we need to set ourselves up to be able to be a quarterback for those clients whether it means like directing them to someone else or being able to you know treat that issue or or train that issue on our own so yeah definitely a, a higher bar has been set
0: And would you have, and this is really interesting coming from you as of what you've done, that kind of entrepreneurial side of things, but what advice would you give people wanting to get into the industry or on the kind of periphery of it, whether it be an intern or an assistant, would you you guide them towards what may be seen as that holy grail of pro collegiate sport or... And would you have any specific advice for them who for those guys maybe not to do that and to consider other other things? Not to push I mean, them away from it, but at least consider other things.
1: Yeah, and I this is something I spend a lot of time doing intern education at MBSC and there's a conversation I have a lot. Um, and I we have staff members that go to professional level, college level, high school level, or go build their own business or stay with us. So and we have people who kind of go all different directions. And I never caution someone to do one or the other, but I like to sit and have a conversation with them and say, okay, what is what is your like the Super Bowl? Like, is that like working with that sixty-something-year-old woman who comes in one day and says, hey, you changed my life? Like my back didn't hurt when I shoveled my driveway like that. For some people, that's a Super Bowl win. Right? Or is it for you like you want to be in that team atmosphere and, and what, is you, what do you want your daily life to be like? Also, I think a lot of coaches build this plan for what they want to do, but they don't sit and think like, hey, what time do you want to wake up? How much time do you want to spend with your spouse or your kids? Where do you want to be 20 years from now? So you have to sit in life plan. Um, but I think the think only way – is, Kevin? Yeah. You have to work backwards and think of these things because a lot of people don't – they get somewhere that they thought they wanted to be and they're like, oh, this isn't what I wanted. Um, so being able to sit down and be nitty gritty and write those things out. Um, but then sometimes the only way you know is if you try it. Like I said, I spent time in, in all these different settings and I came back that I wanted to be here. So go find people you respect in professional sports or collegiate sports or in a private setting and ask to volunteer and ask to intern and really work. Don't just show up and observe and take notes like intern like when people intern for us that you're here 10 hours a day and you're coaching and and think okay am i happy here because at, once i was at NBC and i did that i was like yeah i love this and i'm working and when we were doing it working with uh nicole rodriguez my intern director and there were some days we'd be there 12 14 hours a day and i'd leave down there and I'd be like that was awesome right and if you can go to work and feel that way um then that's probably a good place for you where some people have that experience with us and it's not a good setting for them right so I, I think go find somewhere where you're going to have to work. You're going to grind, and if you leave with a smile, um, and you think you can build that lifestyle that you really want, go for it. But I always say you got to go try it. There's no hurt in trying and saying I didn't like it, right? So put your head in it and put your head down and, and work, and and then you'll come up with the answer.
0: Superb, great way to uh, to round off the conversation. But yeah. last but not least, where can people keep up to date and get in touch with you? Are you a big social media guy or you stay away? From yeah. That? Um,
1: our, our Instagram for Movement is Medicine has got a pretty good following I pretty much post educational stuff that's really our working blog is our Instagram at, it's at Movement is Medicine um, that's if you want to get training information or you want to find out where we're going to be for events um, I post all the certified FSC events through there as well even though we, we do have an at certified FSC Instagram that's pretty much just our all our event posting so if you're trying to get to an event or you just want some free training information because I put out a bunch that's where I would go um, but our Movement is Medicine website, um, That's you can contact me there, our email's on there, and we also kind of post a lot of education there as well. So um, definitely, that would probably be your best bet, um, those two Movement is Medicine pages.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate it. I knew it was going to be a good chat after what Max told me. So uh, really appreciate your, your time and, and giving us your insights. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 201 of the Pasty Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoy the chat with Kevin. So, big thanks to Val Performance and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really interesting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from all corners of the globe. So, you'll be pleased to know this, um, that the, the great content hopefully keeps coming. So, last but not least, if you are enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast... Make sure you click subscribe on your chosen podcast player so every Thursday morning UK time you will get a uh, a download automatic download of the podcast. So thanks again for your support and I will chat to you in episode 202.